This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from John chapter 7. Continuing on tonight in our series in the Gospel of John, we'll be looking at chapter 7, starting in verse 10 and continuing through verse 31. John 7, 10 through 31. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him. For I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him, and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, 
these teachings of our Lord and the opposition that he receives from the world. I pray that you would illuminate our hearts to receive it, that we would understand your son, Jesus Christ, that we would know who he is, that we would know what he has come to do, and that whatever the world may say and whatever opposition that we may face, we may love him and honor him and be faithful to him and serve him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most famous and best-selling books of all time, it was published back in 1936 by a man named Dale Carnegie. It was called How to Win Friends and Influence People. It, in its history, has sold over 30 million copies. It's one of the highest-selling books of all time. It's basically a quintessential self-help book. It influenced many business leaders and other public figures. I went to business school. I got a degree in business for my undergraduate study, and a lot of Carnegie's ideas were still, uh, even in the early 2000s when I was there, were used and discussed there over 70 years after. Now, Carnegie has not been without criticism. Some find his tactics to be manipulative and artificial, sort of along the lines of why people contend to dislike salesmen because they are people who say what they need to say to sell their product. That also doesn't help that people as infamous as the serial killer Charles Manson claimed that Carnegie's strategies helped him to do what he did. But for whatever reasons, whatever purposes, uh, people went for what Carnegie said. His work struck a nerve. His method seemed to have some success. But as we've been working through the Gospel of John, it seems that John has been recording now for a while in the life of Jesus the exact opposite of how to win friends and influence people. Jesus acquired a lot of fame. He acquired a large following, largely through the signs that he had performed, the miracles, the healing, the feeding, and so forth. But then, as we just saw in the last passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, having built this following very deliberately, because he is the Son of God and does everything deliberately and orchestrates everything, hits the crowd with just the right difficult teaching that most of them leave. They don't want to hear him anymore. I'm sure that Dale Carnegie or the church growth movement of our day would be quite disappointed in how Jesus went about all of this. And yet this alienation and opposition that Jesus faces is all a part of his plan. Jesus did not come to make friends or influence people. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to build his church, a kingdom without end. So what might appear to us to be a setback is in fact the work of God being done in separating the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, to use the illustrations that Jesus himself at other times did. This continues in our text tonight. Jesus will continue to face alienation and opposition, and yet salvation still comes for God's people. So we will look at our text tonight in three points. First, we see a division in verses 10 through 13. There's already been a division over Jesus for quite some time. 
but we see that it has grown to the point where it is dominating the conversation at a major Jewish festival. Second, we see a discrediting in verses 14 through 24. Jesus' opponents among the leaders of the Jews, they're trying to make him look bad. They try to make him not believable. They try to attack his credibility. They resort to personal attacks. But then third, we see divinity in verses 25 through 31. Despite these attempts to discredit him, Jesus will once again teach and declare that he is from the Father. He will demonstrate his sovereignty over all things, and even some at this feast will come to believe in him there. So first we see a division in verses 10 through 13. Now last time when we were in the Gospel of John, in this series, we saw that Jesus was rejected by his family, particularly by his brothers. The backdrop against which this rejection was set was the preparation to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Jesus was deliberately waiting to go to the feast. He was hanging close to home in Galilee because he knew that these leaders of the Jews were seeking to kill him. Galilee was a bit more remote. It was a bit more rural. It was a bit more safe. It was an easier place to hide from these leaders. But Jesus' brothers, in our last passage, they challenged Jesus to go to the feast, which was in Jerusalem, where all of these enemies would have been. They challenged him despite this danger. They did so because at this point they did not believe in him. Jesus' brothers had, to this point, rejected him. Maybe they were hoping he would do something there that would convince them. Maybe even more insidiously, they were hoping that Jesus would go and actually get himself in trouble and be silenced so he could stop bringing scandal and scorn upon their family. Either way, at that time when they initially asked, when Jesus' brothers asked, Jesus was clear that he was not going to the feast at that time. But then we find out later that he does go in secret. He goes without his brothers or others knowing that he was going. If he had gone with his family, he would have been easier to track down. He would have been making himself a target. People would have known exactly where to find him, who he was with. They could have trapped him. They could have ambushed him. They could have taken him in and brought him up on charges like they wanted to do. And Jesus knows this. But he also knows that his time has not yet come. He has work left to do in his earthly ministry. He knows what his enemies and his opponents plan to do. And so he's not yet going to give them the chance to end his life. Now, this does not mean that Jesus' presence at the feast remains a secret. As I mentioned last week on Good Friday, we often look at Jesus as a victim. We look at him as a passive recipient of evils done to him. It would almost seem at first glance like a failure or a mistake that Jesus' secret attendance at the feast becomes publicly known. But remember, Jesus is God. He is sovereign over all things, and he knows what is in the hearts of man, including his enemies. He orchestrates events in such a way that they will find him, and they will confront him, but this comes with the opportunity for him to expose his enemies for what they are and to teach more of the truth concerning himself 
This is no accident. There are no accidents in God's works, in God's world. So we see in verse 11 that the Jews were seeking Jesus at the feast. Now these, again, would be the same Jews, the same Jewish leaders that wanted Jesus dead. Maybe they were just simply expecting that Jesus would be there. It was expected that any Jew within a reasonable travel distance would come to these feasts and partake of the worship and celebration. Or maybe, once Jesus does decide to come, somehow word gets around that Jesus had decided to come. It seems that very little of Jesus' movements and actions at this point in his ministry remain secret for long. But however it came to be, Jesus has gone to the feast and the Jewish leaders who want him dead are looking for him. We're heading to yet another showdown. Now not only are the leaders of the Jews seeking Jesus, but many at the feast are talking about Jesus. He is the hot topic. He is the talk of the town. And he is divisive. We read in verse 12 that some think that Jesus is good. Others think the opposite. They think he's no good. They think he's a deceiver. But all this chatter, all this discussion we see is going on in secret. We find out in verse 13 that no one is speaking openly about Jesus out of fear of the Jews. Apparently, the anger of the leadership was so hot that people were scared to even mention Jesus in a way that they might hear. Not only were the Jewish leaders persecuting and opposing Jesus at this point, but even his followers and even those with just maybe some kind of interest in him. They want the truth about Jesus to be completely silenced and suppressed at all costs. Now, perhaps we can relate to this a little bit. In our current situation, the world is increasingly hostile to Christianity, to the truth about Jesus, and it wants to see the truth about Jesus silenced. There is a Christian writer, he's named Aaron Wren, and he does a lot of research and work on the intersection of Christianity and culture. He's come up with a model that he calls the three worlds of evangelicalism. He talks about a positive world, a neutral world, and a negative world. What he means is basically how is the world towards Christianity? So we used to live not that long ago in a positive world. For most of the early history of this country up until about the mid-20th century, Christianity was almost universally seen as something good something favorable, something you wanted to be associated with. The world and the environment of the country was positive towards Christianity. For the longest time, for instance, you couldn't be elected to high office, you couldn't be the president unless you were a Christian. But then we shifted into neutral world. Other ideologies, other forces in society began to grow in influence. Secularism, atheism, Islam, the sexual revolution, the early stages of the LGBT movement. Suddenly Christianity was just one player in the world of which there were many. One ideology, one system complete, competing with many others on the market. But now we have seen in recent years a pivot into negative world. Much of society 
particularly its leaders and institutions, actively oppose and despise Christianity. They say it's backwards, bigoted, full of all kinds of isms and phobias and should be consigned to the dustbin of history. In such a world, we can be inclined to despair and to lose hope. But we can recognize through the experience of Jesus' own life that he lived in his own version of negative world. Much of the world, and especially the rulers and the powerful and the institutions of his day, they wanted nothing to do with him and didn't want anyone else to have anything to do with him either. These leaders of the Jews, they didn't even want people talking about Jesus. But what was happening? People were talking about Jesus. His message was spreading. It could not be silenced. In fact, within just a couple hundred years, Christianity, that they tried to silence and they tried to suppress, would be the predominant religion in that part of the world. All this to say, this can give us hope as we face similar things, as we face this increasingly negative world. But after seeing this division over Jesus, now we come to our second point, an attempt at discrediting Jesus in verses 14 through 24. So Jesus makes his public appearance at the feast. In fact, he makes about the most public of an appearance that anyone could make at this feast. He goes right to the temple. He goes to the place of worship. He goes to the center of the festivities. And there, publicly in the open, he starts teaching. Now, initially, we don't have recorded what he taught, just that he went there and started teaching. But it must have been impressive, because it provokes this response in verse 15 from his opponents. How does this man know letters, having never studied? Now, knowing letters, this isn't talking about letters of an alphabet, or like letters that you write to your friends or family, Basically, letters is an old way, an ancient way of referring to just being educated, to being well-learned and well-rounded, to knowing the sort of things that one goes to school, that one undergoes rigorous study to know. In that day, in the Jewish culture, that was typically done studying under a rabbi. You can think, for instance, of the Apostle Paul. That was what he did. He studied under one of the preeminent rabbis, one of the preeminent scholars of his time, and got that kind of education. But Jesus had never done that. Jesus was a poor Galilean. But despite that, he could teach and he could debate with the best of them. However, knowing what we know about these leaders of the Jews and their interactions with Jesus... What they're probably doing here is something of a backhanded compliment. They acknowledge that he's pretty good at teaching, but they're also pointing out that, yeah, but he doesn't have the education, he doesn't have the schooling that the rest of us do. I guess that appeals to credentialism are not a new problem in our day. We are told so often to trust the experts, trust the science, and so forth. Well, apparently it didn't just start yesterday. Now, this is not to say that education is bad. Education definitely has its place. It's probably better to have surgery done on you by 
someone who went to medical school than someone who didn't. It's probably best to have a lawyer that went to law school. Uh, you probably want chemists who know their way around a lab before they start blowing things up. But the problem with learning, particularly learning as it has been applied to the study of the Bible, the study of theology, is that it has often become a destructive force, not seeking to illuminate the clear truths of God's word, but to obscure and confuse them. In my experience, which admittedly is limited, but whenever someone in our day starts a sentence with the consensus of scholars is, what follows next is almost certainly something strange and possibly even heretical. The academy, the, the schools, many of them have been hijacked by unbelievers and the destructive forces of postmodernism. Whenever people have to preface their argument with, I have this or that degree from this or that school, and I have been studying this topic for this many years, it's not necessarily true, but probably a good sign that they don't actually have that much substance behind what they're saying. The argument can't stand on its own. You've been studying in Sunday school J. Gresham Machen. He was a scholar. He's the founder of the OPC. He was a brilliant man. He had all the degrees. He had all the credentials. But he's not interested in telling you about his degrees or his credentials. He has his points. He's going to make them. They'll stand on their own merits. Another who comes to mind is R.C. Sproul. The man was brilliant. He probably could have been a great professor, great academic author, but he devoted most of his life and career to explaining Reformed theology plainly and clearly, yet profoundly, to normal people in the church. Or think of the Apostle Paul. He actually had about the best Jewish education that someone could get back in that time. He was educated under Gamaliel, one of the great rabbis, one of the high council. He does mention this every once in a while. But usually when he mentions it, it's only to show how, meaningly, how meaningless and foolish it is to trust in such things. It is among the things he counts as loss, as waste, compared to the glory of knowing Christ and serving him. So, all of this to say, appeals to credentialism are usually empty. There's usually something wrong with what's being argued. But as we learn tonight, these problems go all the way back to the time of Jesus. These leaders of the Jews, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, those with the credentials of their day show that they revile and condemn and hate Jesus for many reasons. But one is because he does not bear the societally acceptable marks of learning and education that they think he should have. And this is one of the ways they try to discredit him. These leaders of the Jews, they're so wrapped up in their stuff and their honor and their learning, their rules, their additions to the law, that they're trying anything they can come up with to discredit Jesus. But Jesus responds beginning in verse 16. And he appeals not to learning, not to study, but to a higher authority. My doctrine is not mine. 
but his who sent me. So Jesus is reminding these Jews who have heard it before as it's come up several times in Jesus' teaching that Jesus is acting on the authority of his Father. He is divine, and he was sent from the Father. We'll discuss that more under the third point. Jesus responds to their credentialist appeal with true tests of true doctrine. First, he says in verse 17, that if anyone wills to do his will, that is the Father's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. In other words, those who seek to do God's will will recognize that Jesus' doctrine is the real thing. It is the genuine article. Those whom God has illuminated their hearts and minds to understand his will and ways hear and receive Jesus' teachings. Now, this notably excludes these rulers of the Jews who are opposing Jesus. Though they should be those who know and do and teach the will of God, by their rejection of Christ, they show that their devotions and interests are elsewhere. But second, closely related to the first, true doctrine from a true source glorifies God. Now we have to make some distinctions here. Because as Reformed people, we affirm that everything ultimately glorifies God. Some things do so unwittingly and unwillingly. But true doctrine has the glory of God as its end, as its goal. It sets out to glorify God in the ways that he has revealed himself as being glorified. Third, we see that true doctrine works itself out in righteousness. This true doctrine that seeks God's will and glory produces righteousness in those who teach it and hear it and believe it. This is also a case against Jesus' opponents. They have been plotting murder. They have been conspiring to kill Jesus without just cause. This is a violation of the law. This is a violation of God's word. They think... Jesus is a blasphemer, which at this time would have been grounds for execution. But they are calling him a blasphemer when he is in reality teaching true doctrine in accord with the will and word of God. The Jews are so corrupt that they would rather kill opponents than consider the possibility of reforming themselves. So credentialism is not a new problem, but corruption is not either. These men are using their power towards evil ends to silence righteous teaching, to silence the true word of God. Now the people, they do not understand. They think even that Jesus is being paranoid. In fact, they even think he has been possessed by a demon. And they allege this in verse 20. But Jesus knows the truth. He knows what is in the hearts of men. He knows what the Jews are plotting to do to him. And it is here that Jesus returns back to the initial reason why those leaders in Judea wanted to kill him. This goes all the way back to chapter 5, when Jesus healed the paralytic at the pool of Bethsaida on the Sabbath. John 5.16 says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Because he had done these things, so 
healing this man on the Sabbath. Now, there were other reasons by now, but that was where it started. That was the root problem. The Jewish leaders were so stuck on their traditions and additions to the law, and this was nowhere more apparent than in how they treated the Sabbath. It was not enough for them to do what the word required concerning the Sabbath. They added all these other rules, all these other traditions on top of it. And they could not and would not even entertain the possibility that Jesus was right and they were wrong. So, I guess officials being stubbornly committed to failed and harmful and untrue agendas isn't a new problem either. So Jesus points out to them that their traditions and additions and dogmatism about the law are inconsistent. He brings up, as an example, circumcision. He says they got it from Moses, though not originally. It actually traces back to Abraham. We'll see that in a few weeks, Lord willing, in Genesis. But Moses is viewed as the lawgiver, and it is to Moses that these leaders of the Jews are always appealing. So, they have this rite of circumcision, this covenant sign, was to be given to every male child on the eighth day of his life. Now that includes if the eighth day falls on a Sabbath. They'll still do that even if it's on the Sabbath. They have no problem with it. That is a kind of work on the Sabbath that is okay. So Jesus' argument is basically this. If doing the rite of circumcision on the Sabbath is permissible, how much more permissible is it to do works of necessity and mercy? Like Jesus did in healing that man of a lifelong affliction that caused so much suffering and pain. And in verse 24, Jesus concludes this section with this. Do not judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, these leaders of the Jews needed to stop judging superficially. They needed to stop judging on their evil and prideful intentions and start judging things the way God judges them, according to the criteria that Jesus had set forth. So, we've seen the division among the people about Jesus. And then after this, this effort at discrediting Jesus. But now we come to our third and final point tonight. Jesus will reassert his divinity in verses 25 through 31. So we see a deepening of the division and confusion in verses 25 through 27. The crowd is impressed with Jesus' boldness. In fact, there's even some suspicion in the crowd that he might be the Christ, he might be the Messiah. But these ideas are being generally dismissed for a reason we have also seen before. They think according to natural terms. They think, well, this is the son of Joseph and Mary of Nazareth. They do not know or they do not believe that he was supernaturally conceived. And yet Jesus, again, knowing what is in the hearts of his critics and despisers, he responds. He cries out. He gets loud. He wants this part to be heard by everyone. He rebukes this unbelief. He says, you both know me and you know where I am from. This is not a statement 
a validation or agreement. It is actually a rebuke. I've mentioned before that Greek text in this day, which is the Gospel of John and all the New Testament was written in Greek, does not include punctuation. So it's very possible you'd see this statement and it would have either a question mark or an exclamation point on the end. It could have a question mark. It could be something like a rhetorical challenge, like, you know me? You know where I'm from? Or an exclamation point dismissively. You know me. You know where I'm from, almost ironically or sarcastically. Because the point he's making is they don't know him. They don't know where he's from. But he's about to tell them. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Jesus is once again asserting his divine origin. He has come from the Father. The Father and the Son, outside of time, before the world, entered into a covenant, entered into agreement that the Father would send the Son into the world to accomplish a work of redemption for his people. And these people are rejecting him, they're rejecting Christ, because they reject God. They have their excuses. Well, we know where he's from. We know his family. We know our traditions. We know our leaders. They have the fancy education. They tell us not to believe, and we have our traditions. But at the end of the day, all of it is unbelief. They do not believe that Jesus is God, and they do not believe that Jesus is from God. And those who do not believe this will die in their sins. We see that this provokes yet another response. The Jews sought to take him. They were ready to carry out their murderous plan right then and there on the spot against Jesus. But Jesus' time had not yet come. Because he is divine... He is sovereign over all, and he knows and purposes exactly when he will be given into their hands. He knows that he will be given into their hands, but not yet. He still has work to do, and so they are not able to take him. But there is another response, another almost surprising outcome in verse 31. Many of the people believed in him. Now, there's probably here some mixture of true and false belief. William Hendrickson, he comments on this verse that some are probably seeing Jesus as a political Messiah because he has been able to confound and thwart the existing order. But certainly at least some in this crowd really do believe who Jesus is and they believe his teaching and they believe in the work that he has come to do. The word does not return void. And it will bear fruit even in this murderously hostile environment that Jesus is facing. They pose a question which demands a negative answer, these from the crowd. When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Basically, he has to be the Christ. He's done so much. He's shown so much. No one else could possibly top this. Now, this confrontation in Jerusalem is not over. We will, Lord willing, continue to look at it next time. But for now, it is sufficient to see 
that the same issue that was put before the crowd in Jerusalem is put before us. How do we respond to the presence and power of Jesus? Is it with belief or is it with unbelief? Unbelief can take many different forms. Interest in worldly categories and credentials and customs. Interest in ourselves and our own agendas and our own desires. Any of these things that cause us to not accept Jesus' rightful place over our lives, his rule, his lordship, his rightful place as king. Maybe it's interest in the speculations and philosophies or the traditions of our present evil age. Maybe it's interest in legalism or self-righteousness. Whatever form it takes, unbelief is unbelief. Unbelief was the problem of the Jews, of the leaders, and of many in the crowd that day. But it's not the only option. There is the way of belief, the way of faith, whereby, empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit, we receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as he has freely offered to us in the gospel. Because this is the only way of salvation. This is the way in which His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His perfect life becomes our life. And His cursed death takes the place of the cursed death we deserved. And His resurrection becomes our hope for the resurrection. And that is the call of the gospel. Christ has been shown to us. Christ has fulfilled this work. Christ has done what he purposed to do. He has come to redeem and save a people from their sins. So will you believe him or will you not? May we all believe Christ and hold fast to him and be faithful to him and proclaim him even in a hostile world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what you have revealed to us through your word. We thank you most of all for our Lord Jesus Christ, who became a man, who faced all the miseries of this life, who faced this opposition, who faced this rejection, and yet even in this, his power and his glory and his truth shone through. I pray that our response would be tonight of that of the few in the crowd who did believe, that we would not be hindered by the things of this world, the things the world wants, the things the world tries to pull us to, but that we would receive and rest upon Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. And I pray that even as the world hates us, as it opposes us, as it seeks to silence the truth about you, that we would be faithful and that we would be willing, and that we would carry this word where it needs to be heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.